Hello, and welcome to Macro Horizons High Quality Spreads for the week of July 7th, Flight to Ambiguity. I'm your host, Dan Creeder, here with Dan Belton, as we discuss this week's unique rally in Treasury yields and what it means for the path of credit spreads in both the near term and the long term. Each week, we offer our view on credit spreads, ranging from the highest quality sectors such as agencies and SSAs to investment-grade corporates. We also focus on U.S. dollar swap spreads and all the factors that entails, including funding markets, cross-currency markets, and the transition from LIBOR to SOFR. The topics that come up most frequently in conversations with clients and listeners form the basis for each episode, so please don't hesitate to reach out to us with questions or topics you would like to hear discussed. We can be found on Bloomberg or emailed directly at dan.creeter, K-R-I-E-T-E-R, at bmo.com. We value and greatly appreciate your input. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Well, Belton, I think there's only one place we can really start today's podcast, and that's by talking about the big rally in Treasury yields we've had this week that has now brought Treasuries down to just above 130 as we record. And brings the peak to trough move from the March 31 peak in yields to over 40 basis points in the 10-year. Now, fortunately, we do not focus on treasury yields. If we did, I promise you I would have gotten this move quite wrong. Tip of the cap to BMO rate strategist Ian Lingen, who basically nailed this and has been calling for 140 or beneath on the 10-year for a while now. Fortunately for us, we focus on credit, and we have maintained a neutral stance on credit for the better part of the last quarter. And despite the big move in treasuries, it looks like the neutral stance was right, at least so far. Yeah, Dan. So we talked a lot in the first quarter about what a narrow range that credit spreads have been confined to. They traded in an 11 basis point range in the first quarter of the year. The second quarter range was even narrower at 10 basis points. And we're really stuck towards the bottom end of that range, but it doesn't seem like there's an obvious catalyst to get us outside of that range at this point. Now, I think this recent rally in treasury yields could be that. We could see a little bit of narrowing on the back of that, just based on the relative value argument that we've made on this podcast many times before, which is that lower treasury yields effectively makes that asset class less attractive relative to credit spreads, which should bid credit spreads narrower, all else equal. Well, we'll certainly get into that. But before we get there, I want to just take a step back and talk about how the neutral view on credit appears to be right, because credit is not moving in response to this really surprising rally in treasury yields. I mean, we're maybe a basis point wider, tone feels a little bit softer, but we're still trading, as you said, Dan, within a basis point or two of post-crisis lows. And I use the word unique to describe the treasury rally at the top of the show. And the reason I said unique is because we are seeing such a significant repricing of treasury yields without any real reaction in credit at all. Equities are essentially unchanged as well, still bouncing around near the top. So you don't often historically see such a volatile move in treasuries without any reaction in credit. In fact, I went back over the past 10 years since the financial crisis to look at all the instances of 10-year yields trading 20% or more lower in the span of three months. And I found about 10 of them. And of the 10, only one was not accompanied by an appreciable move in credit. And that one was the 2019 environment where we saw 10-year treasury yields rally pretty significantly as the Fed embarked on its first cutting campaign since the global financial crisis. So I think you you have a pretty unique set of circumstances there in 2019 that sets it apart from the other nine episodes. And all of those nine When we saw the 20% rally in treasury yields, we saw at least a considerable backup in credit spreads that was, if nothing else, a buying opportunity. Now, of course, I have to acknowledge that 
the majority of those nine episodes we would characterize as a flight to quality, where there was some stress. We include, obviously, the global financial crisis here. There was the European debt crisis. Uh, there were, you know, along the way, some flights to quality that naturally come with the widening in credit. So maybe that's what makes this one unique. We don't really see any flight to quality behavior. There's not really any flight to quality catalyst. So I guess to try and understand what's going to happen for credit going forward, we have to try to break down what's driving this rally in treasuries. With that in mind, Dan, the rally really started towards the end of last week, and it came alongside a relatively strong unemployment report on Friday. What'd you make of that? Yes, the rally did start to some degree on Friday, and I thought that was somewhat curious. We had a pretty strong employment report by all accounts. The one reason that you could argue the rally was warranted was some of the wage data came in a little bit lower than expected with a revision to the previous month, but still overall a pretty solid jobs report. Then it really started in earnest on Tuesday after the ISM services miss, which again wasn't a really serious disappointment, but it did take a little bit of wind out of the sails of the reflation trade. So as we've talked about in this podcast recently, for this reflation narrative to really be borne out and for inflation to start to accelerate at a rate of consistently above 2% meeting the Fed's new objective with respect to inflation, we would need to see really strong data coming in in the spring and summer here. And for even a small downside miss in some of these recent prints, I think that just represents a hit to the narrative that inflation is going to be as strong as some were expecting. Now, it certainly is possible. I think it's too early to write off this notion of accelerating inflation really coming up in the next few months, but it does represent a hit to that narrative, I think. But even what you just said highlights a dichotomy that I think we have to talk about, which is we saw Treasury yields rally on Tuesday in response to a disappointing ISM number, and we saw Treasuries rally on Friday in response to a employment number that I guess some of the peripheral metrics didn't look as strong, but still plus 850 on NFP has to be considered strong. And we rally. So I agree with you that inflation, you know, we've talked about inflation, everyone has talked about inflation being the most important determinant of rates and spreads going forward. So we can't really have this conversation without discussing the role that inflation is playing. And I think obviously, given the move we've had this week, it's not going to be groundbreaking to say that inflation concerns are dropping. Now, we can drill down a little bit there and talk a bit about what that means. Does that mean that the idea that inflation is transitory or ultimately not going to be a concern, is that what's driving this? Or is this a perception that the Fed is going to have to embark on ending accommodation either sooner or more rapidly than originally expected? And I think that that is an important distinction to make because as we sit here today, it's difficult not to see inflation coming. I mean, even today, we had another record print on the jolts survey. And I don't want to make too much out of jolts, but we see all the evidence of inflation coming from supply-side bottlenecks. We obviously know the transitory impact there. But if we're going to get meaningful inflation, it has to come from the wage side. We have to see wage inflation. And with jolts at all-time highs and reports of people quitting their jobs in unprecedented volume and some frictions between hiring people back or people that may have ultimately just permanently left the workforce, still some lingering effects of stimulus. Like I can at least see the ingredients for how wage inflation could really start up here. And we actually get the start of a wage cycle. So I'm not saying it's going to happen, but I can at least see the possibility of it, which is why the timing of a big rally in treasury yields comes as a bit of a surprise to me. So Dan, what's your thoughts on inflation here? Do you agree at least with my sentiment that the move in treasury yields here is an indictment of the reflation narrative? And if so, is it inflation's not going to be a long-term problem? The fundamental drivers are just too deflationary? Or is it a view on the Fed? Or is it maybe a little bit of both? 
Yeah, I am with you that this move in Treasury seems to be primarily driven by lack of inflation concerns or a capitulation of the reflation narrative. To me, it's more the former of the two explanations you said. I don't think this is necessarily driven by expectations for the Fed to start to remove accommodation prematurely. I really think it's more of an acknowledgement that inflation is going to be really, really hard to get this cycle, at least in terms of the accelerating wage inflation that we talk about. There's, of course, supply side bottlenecks that are causing inflation, and inflation prints have been high and will continue to be high. I think next week the market is expecting about 4.9% year-over-year CPI growth. So we are getting inflation. It's just not the type that is going to be sustained enough to cause the Fed to remove accommodation prematurely. And that, to me, is what's driving this move in treasuries. I think the other thing is, you know, it's not unlike what we see in a lot of other asset classes. Credit is at all-time highs. Equities are at all-time highs. If there is less of a threat of sustained high inflation, it adds the impetus that treasuries are not a bad buy here, given how rich all other fixed-income asset classes are. Yeah, not just fixed income, but all asset classes. And then you can broaden that out to look at fixed income asset classes around the world with negative yields or whatever it is. We don't need to spend time there. You know, negative yields and the obvious implication there. So, Dan, I think you're right. Capitulation really seems to resonate here with me, is particularly the lack of really any response in other risk assets. You know, we still know that there's a ton, a ton of investment assets bouncing around. We're seeing the RRP at almost a trillion dollars last week. And obviously that's more a commentary on what's going on specifically at the short end. But all these are symptoms of just way too much cash, way too much investment assets without a lot of alternatives to go with it. And if this is truly the view that inflation is going to ultimately not be a big concern, then what does that pretend for the next few years in terms of economic growth and the path of yields and, and the returns you're likely to get from financial assets? Because if we truly aren't getting inflation, that means we're very likely to get a repeat of the economic recovery that came following the financial crisis, which was very low growth for a while, low volatility, as the Fed continued to try to support markets with ample reserves and very low financial returns. Like we're headed there if we're not going to get inflation. And so if that's where we're headed, this move makes sense. And we should mention we have seen break-evens fall, but at least up until today, it's been a move as much in real yields that it has been in break-evens. And we've seen real yields fall. And that all makes sense. And so if this is a big capitulation, Dan, what does that tell you for the near-term path of credit spreads? Yeah, I think it certainly adds to the bias that we might not get a significant backup that we've been looking for to use as another entry point. If this move is sustained in treasuries and we do see low rates for a long period of time, that should ultimately anchor credit spreads at these narrow levels and potentially even propel them to new all-time tights. And we've been talking about this Goldilocks scenario and how the two-sided economic risks could be bad for credit spreads. On one hand, higher rates, higher inflation, that could cause credit spreads to just move mechanically wider as investors demand wider spreads given higher treasury rates. But on the other side of the equation, the one that we're sort of now talking about as as a more likely scenario, a sustained low growth environment. Now, that could cause some transitory spread weakness where you have an increase in downgrades. But given a long-term low interest rate environment where Fed accommodation is pretty likely for the foreseeable future, that could keep spreads confined to these narrow ranges that we've seen over the course of 2021. 
And all told, it just sort of weakens my conviction that we're going to see spread weakness here coming up. And we might be stuck in this low volatility, tight trading range that we're in right now. Above all else, for me, the move means that we haven't seen the lows in credit spreads yet. I think we are certainly going to see spreads break narrower. And I wouldn't be surprised at spreads in, you know, in the 65 to 70 basis point range before this is all said and done. That said, I haven't completely abandoned the notion that we're going to get a buying opportunity in August. I still think that deteriorating demand side and technicals in August are a really important trend. I also think that, you know, we're going to have for the first time the sort of relentless onslaught of reserves into the system coming from Treasury's general account. That's going to stop in August with the debt ceiling. That could result in at least some slowing in the demand for investment assets, including credit spreads. I also haven't yet waved the checkered flag on this move in Treasury yields. We talked about how it hasn't exhibited any flight to quality behavior so far, and I don't expect that it will, but tone is weaker for sure in the past couple of days. And I, I wouldn't necessarily say it's all over at this point and that there's no chance that spreads will not widen at least a little bit. I mean, looking at of those nine previous episodes of a 20% rally in treasuries, actually the one that stands out as most applicable to me is a 20% rally or so we saw in 2010, which wasn't really much of a flight to quality so much as just a repricing of the market, you know, reflecting now less optimistic projections for the strength of the economic recovery following the financial crisis. We just saw yields rally and credit spreads widen a little bit. It wasn't like the widening in 2011 or 12, where we saw spreads more significantly wider as a result of the European debt crisis or some actual flight to quality event. We just saw a bit of a widening reflecting a a slower economic recovery. And I think we could see that. So I I haven't given up on the notion that we're still going to see a buying opportunity here. That's why I'm still leaning neutral on credit spreads, because I think we could get that widening with potentially weaker technicals, particularly on the demand side going forward in August. But to your point, Dan, I think that that buying opportunity may not prove to be very significant, you know, maybe 10 basis points, if we even get that. And then this week's rally in charges really strengthens further the conviction that we're going to rally from there and probably through current levels in relatively short order. Now, the, the one caveat that I would say here, Dan, I'm interested to get your thoughts on it, is that this week's move, at least for me, leaves us exposed to the possibility that inflation could cause some less orderly market moves in the months ahead. Now, I think that's a low probability of that happening, but I'm also not yet convinced that inflation is truly just put to bed at this point. I will say, though, that if we are going to see inflation become a concern for the market again, where we're talking about reflation and we see a rapid repricing higher of treasury yields and wider credit spreads, it would have to be an almost conscious choice by the Fed. You know, because I think The Fed certainly has the tools to fight inflation. We know they have the tools. And the more hawkish than we expected meeting in last June made it seem like, at least to me, that inflation was already on their monitor. We'll get the minutes today that really shows us how much they were talking about it. But I didn't get the sense that the Fed had truly shifted its stance on inflation, that we were going to let inflation run hot, and I mean really hot, for a while before we make any moves to tamp it down. If the Fed is again more dovish either in today's minutes or at the July meeting, as we see still more inflation prints and the Fed continuing to say, we're not going to stand in the way of inflation, I think there is risk then that the market could move and it could be a more volatile move now, even if it's not the most likely outcome. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I agree. I think the market has 
certainly moved and it's now no longer positioned for the potential for either higher inflation on a sustained basis or a real upside surprise to broad economic growth and productivity, which I think would cause a rather disorderly move higher in treasuries. Now, that could also be accompanied by removal of Fed accommodation, which would exacerbate that move. And that's a scenario in which we could see a move of the magnitude similar to something like the taper tantrum, which we saw in 2013. Now, we've said here and in, in our written work that we don't expect a taper tantrum-like move to result from the announcement of Fed tapering, but we could see something sort of disorderly like that if it were coupled by higher inflation data, higher productivity. And that's something that, you know, as of this week, certainly, I think the market is not really positioned for. That is, of course, the only scenario also where you could see credit spreads, you know, not just wider in the short term, but also the long term. If you get a truly inflationary cycle, I think that's the only threat to wider credit spreads in the long term. Other than that, if you have inflation proving transitory or the Fed moving rapidly to limit inflation, I think no matter what, then you're going to get spreads that end up going narrower than they are currently. And before wrapping up today's episode, Dan, I want to talk about you know more of a longer term storyline, but one that we're going to get developments on here in the next couple of days. So that's why we'll talk about it today to put it on investors' radar. But we've talked many times about how the pandemic in many ways represented somewhat of a regime shift for credit spreads and that we're ultimately just going to see lower credit spreads than we've seen historically. There's a few reasons for that. First, we've talked about how the Fed backstop for credit is now certainly stronger than ever after purchasing corporate bonds all the way down to junk and even purchasing junk in some instances for the first time and the way that that changes the way investors engage with risk at this point. We've also talked about how there's more buyers now with rates super low. This is really a trend we've seen since the financial crisis. It's just buyers moving increasingly out the credit spectrum You know, in terms of what's on an improved list or or what's being targeted just to try and get more yield. And and the pandemic's not going to do anything to stem that. So these are drivers of long-term downward influence on spreads. And there's another one that arises from President Biden's bailout package, the ARPA package in March that I want to talk about. And that's specifically a bailout for multi-employer pension funds that came in the ARPA package that will deliver as much as $86 billion or potentially even more than that of federal money to underfunded multi-employer, mostly union pension funds, with a lot of that likely to find its way into the corporate market. So we'll talk a bit about the details on what ARPA has done and what this bailout money could mean for corporate credit. But before getting into that, Dan, I just wanted to start with a bit of a discussion on you know, the primary sources of demand for corporate bonds and how the buyer base for corporate paper looks. Where do pensions fit in in that landscape? Yeah, so pensions hold about 10% or so of the US dollar investment grade corporate market. And that's been a pretty steady source of demand. The bigger buyer bases, at least as classified in the Fed's Z1 data, are the rest of the world sector insurance companies, which includes life and property and casualty, and then mutual funds and ETFs. And those three categories of the biggest holders have actually increased their share of the market over the past couple of years. Primarily, the mutual fund slash ETF sector, the retail investors, have bought up an increasingly large share of the investment-grade corporate market. And that's something that we see with this weekly bond flow data, which up until the last few weeks has been an extremely strong, steady source of demand, these bond fund inflows, averaging several billion dollars every week. But pensions have, over the past 20 years or so, been a pretty stable source of demand for corporate bonds. And I think there's some reason to expect that pension holdings of U.S. dollar corporates could increase given this bailout. 
And to that point, just to provide a little more detail on what this bailout means, it's targeted specifically at underfunded multi-employer pension funds. And there are some criteria for determines what kind of fund is underfunded or in critical stress here. But I guess cut to the chase, it's $86 billion or potentially more than that that's going to be coming that's going to be coming to multi-employer pension funds. And then ostensibly that will be invested into either equities or corporate bonds. We don't know exactly what that mix is going to be. So the reason we're talking about in today's episode is because when ARPA was passed in March of this year, the government agency that will be administering this program, it's known as the Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation, they were given 120 days to provide further guidance for how pension funds can apply for this assistance and then what the assistance slash approval slash payment process will look like. And also along that time frame, the PBGC will announce any conditions that come with the federal bailout money. For example, there are certain things that the PBGC cannot change as a result of it, but one thing they can change is they are allowed to make tweaks to requirements surrounding what pension funds can and cannot be invested in, things of that nature. So we know the $86 billion is coming, but we don't know yet really when it's coming. It could come as early as this year. We may not see the money start flowing until next year at the earliest with even the larger portions of the funds flowing not until 2023 or 24 even potentially. And we don't know yet what exactly the funds can be invested in. We know corporate bonds will be one of them. It's the only asset class specifically listed by ARPA as eligible for the stimulus funds. But the bill also said there could be other eligible investment classes that will be determined by PBGC. So obviously, the ultimate impact on credit spread that's going to come alongside what these details are, and we're likely going to get them revealed by Friday. So that's why we're talking about it today. And in our written work, we'll talk about it a bit more likely at the end of this week or maybe next week, depending on the timing. And I I would just sort of summarize things to say is that at the end of the day, this will likely be at least an impetus toward heavier demand for corporate paper at some point in time in the next couple of years, which should put modest downward pressure on credit spreads, particularly further out the curve where pension funds tend to buy. I just wanted to put a little more nuance on the conversation here, Dan, talk about how well it's $86 billion that's coming from the government that doesn't necessarily represent the only source of demand coming from multi-employer pension funds as a result of this legislation. Because remember, these are very underfunded pensions. And as funding status goes lower and lower, sometimes we see pension funds increase allocations towards equity, which obviously offers higher potential returns, as a method of trying to catch up. So to the extent that that's true, if a multi-employer pension fund then receives this $86 billion and becomes, you know, quote unquote, well-funded again, you could see a rotation out of equities and into fixed income to restore the sort of rule of thumb, quote unquote, 60-40 equity fixed income investment if there had been an overweight towards equities as a means of trying to catch up in these past couple of years. So it's $86 billion, but then potentially more than that, reflecting any rotation that comes out of equities as a result of rebalancing. So, so you know, bottom line, We'll continue to monitor this, but I think it's a trend worth keeping your eye on for anyone invested in the corporate bond market, and we'll see those details coming up by the end of the week. And Dan, before we wrap up today, for anyone who managed to make it this far in the episode, we just want to highlight that the 2021 Institutional Investor Global Fixed Income Research Survey is now open. So if you find our podcasts or written work valuable, we would greatly appreciate your support in this survey. In order to vote, you can go to voting.institutionalinvestor.com and follow the prompts there, or we will be shamelessly sending out some emails and Bloomberg messages begging for votes for this survey. Dan and I are hoping for votes in the federal agency debt, investment grade strategy, short duration strategy, and fixed income strategy categories. 
And I just want to echo what Dan said. A big thank you to everyone who's listened to our podcast over the course of the past couple of years and is still listening to this episode now. That shows real dedication. Thank you for any support that you give us in the II campaign. It does truly mean a lot to us. So thank you for that. And then on a final programming note, we will not be recording next week. We have a monthly roundtable with the broader fixed income team. So we'll be back here in high quality spreads in two weeks. And thanks everyone for listening. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com slash macrohorizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy efforts as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. Please email us at daniel.belton, B-E-L-T-O-N, at bmo.com. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show is supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been edited and produced by Puddle Creative. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options, or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests in you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal. 